Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to have with me today Bruce Cameron. He's the director of the System Architecture Lab at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Bruce also co-founded a consulting firm, Technology Strategy Partners, where he has worked with many of the leading firms in tech, aerospace, logistics, and consumer goods. Bruce, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. My pleasure. So can you give us an overview of your program there at the Systems Architecture Lab? What kind of problems do you work on? Sure. So um, we're a research group at MIT that is primarily focused on product development. Uh, And specifically within the product development field, we're interested in questions about how do people make decisions early in the design phase. So there's um, lots and lots of evidence that there's tremendous opportunity, there's tremendous leverage that happens with front-end design. Um, Things like, you know, are we going to make this a rear-wheel drive or a front-wheel drive car? Are we going to have this algorithm run in real-time or near real-time? These are sort of um, categorical decisions that happen early in the design process. We're sort of interested in how do people make these? Um, There's a bunch of there's a bunch of research that suggests that we we use heuristics. Uh, we don't particularly spend time on these decisions relative to their importance in terms of overall performance. And so um, we study a lot of historical programs um, to, to try and understand how what has worked in the past and what could work in the future. Um, from a domain perspective, um, I'm an aerospace engineer by training, as are many of the people who work in the lab. And so we've done a lot of, a lot of work in the aerospace domain, both in... Um, sort of manned space and exploration, uh, as well as in the um, sort of aerospace and defense context. Uh, but the lab has also worked across a number of different industries, among other things. Uh, the lab has done work in uh, flight vehicle development, has done work in consumer products, has done work in uh, heavy equipment. So we've, you know, we, we really have historically covered the waterfront, although our center of mass is, is um, sort of the aerospace industry. Um- kind of glad to hear that you're actually taking a look at program histories. I think that that's one of the uh, places that historians, especially I study a little bit of history in undergrad as well, that we tend to fall flat on. There's a lot I think that we can kind of learn there from history, but we tend to kind of keep moving, go on to the next program. And if we kind of look back, it's usually, well, what was the cost and schedule growth, but without really looking, thinking about the, the context of what was going on. Well, I'll give you a, I'll give you a prime example of that. I used to work for NASA, and um, at the at the time we were uh, in the Bush two era sort of return to the moon, um, sort of mid two thousands time frame, and uh, I was uh, consulting to them and responsible in part for setting some cost and schedule projections. And there was this um, new wave of uh, probabilistic cost and schedule. So the idea that we weren't just going to give up, you know, on an immediate forecast that was, you know, it's going to launch on this date and it's going to cost this many dollars, but we'd give a sort of a distribution around that. And yet we had sort of failed to learn from history in the sense that um, when you look at the distribution of cost and scheduled dispersion uh, against targets for historical NASA programs, you see that there's an enormous variation. I forget what the numbers were, but it was um, something on the order of 67% cost growth uh, for a basket of NASA programs on average. 
And yet the variance on the forecast that we were developing was uh, on the order of 2%, uh, plus or minus. Um, so you know, those that failed to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? Right. Yeah, I remember uh, Andy Prince over there at NASA has had a few pretty good papers showing about cost growth in NASA and how the S-curve of probabilistic cost outcomes at the outset of the program wasn't even like the 100 percentile was still lower than the zeroth percentile close to when the project was finishing. So that there was huge growth there. And you're showing that these probabilistic um, measures of cost growth weren't really capturing the tail. Yeah. So we often hear about a trend towards open architecture. Can you describe what that means and how is it manifesting in the Department of Defense versus the uh, commercial industry? This is a great question. Uh, clearly a buzzword. Um, I think this is a term that is used um, hopefully uh, more often than it is used descriptively. Um, we hope to have an open architecture in the future rather than uh, this constitutes an open architecture versus that constitutes a closed architecture. Um, you know, number of times that you see people actually refer to this as a closed architecture is actually very rare, uh, suggesting that there's some bias inherent in this term. So I think um, uh, there's a couple of ways to define this. Um, uh, One way to think about this is whether there's uh, more than one contributor to the architecture. Um, So uh, you could think about this as do we have potentially two primes uh, that are building important pieces of this architecture? Uh, as one way to define it, you know, some people also define open as an unbounded potential list of contributors. So when you think about, um, you know, open architectures that exist in tools on the internet, um, for example, uh, uh, Linux, uh, the GNU uh, processing software, et cetera, et cetera, that's an unbounded potential list of con- contributors, right? Um, you know, we have people from all over the world who are writing code in a sort of copyleft environment. So uh, there's there's quite a variety of um, definitions, but I think the usage in aerospace and defense uh, is often used from a government perspective to mean that we could recompete subsections of the architecture without being locked in uh, to an existing vendor, uh, which is a much narrower usage of the term than I think you would hear more broadly in... Um, computer science or in um, uh, in use in the uh, sort of on the broader internet. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the lock-in problem, particularly in intellectual property. What kinds of architectures can protect the DOD against lock-in? Well, that's a prescriptive question, right? What could we do in the future? Um, we are as much interested in the descriptive side of that as to where have people gotten locked in in the past um, uh, as we are in a set of prescriptions? Unfortunately, I think from a research perspective, there's there's too many prescriptions and not enough description um, in a lot of areas around acquisition and around product development. Um, so uh, I'll give you my descriptive version of the problem first before we get into the prescriptive side. Um, the question of lock-in is, uh, you know, is as old as government acquisitions, right? It, uh, this is the idea that uh, I cannot go to a suite of vendors, I cannot get multiple bids because something about the nature of the technology that I'm buying uh, or the nature of the contract means that I'm sort of forced to come back to one person uh, or one entity. 
and that's you know similar to the idea of a monopoly, but um, usually refers to sort of some some past technology that we acquired and would like to make changes to, or some past contract that we had that we would uh, like to grow in scope. So with that in mind, we've done a little bit of research, and by we, I mean myself and Chris Berardi, with Chris Berardi doing the uh, lion's share of the work when he was uh, doing his PhD at MIT a couple of years ago, on um, you know what is, the, what is the rate at which people are locked in, uh, how might we measure lock-in, and uh, what, what, if any, um, technical measures might correlate with people's understanding of whether they're locked in or not. And uh, essentially what we got out of this was that uh, when you're looking specifically at computer code, there are actually pretty good ways to understand whether you're locked in or not. It was, it was surprisingly uh, descriptive um, in terms of the, the structure of the code tells you a lot about your relative ability to carve a portion of the code out and uh, recompete it. And uh, we didn't study hardware programs in this uh, in this context, but um, what we found was essentially uh, programs that had relatively modular architectures, and I'll I'll define that term in a moment. Um, tended to uh, tended to avoid lock-in uh, versus programs that had, uh, for lack of a better word, hairball architectures. Um, you know, code that was intimately connected to all other pieces of the code. Uh, tended to display more lock-in behavior. Um, that term modular architecture gets thrown around a lot. Um, I think it's so broad in use as to almost mean nothing. Um, in this case, what we meant was um, uh, computer code that has relatively few um, parameters passed back and forth between external uh, pieces of code and the, um, the code as defined by a set of boundaries. Um, so if you were looking at a diagram of this, it would look like a series of blocks with relatively few lines between them rather than a whole bunch of blocks with a mess of spaghetti lines between them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it seemed to me that, at least in the Department of Defense, whenever we talk about joint programs, they're usually trying to satisfy multiple missions with a single flexible platform. And then that platform often requires component designs that are completely unique to it. So that kind of reminds me of... Uh, where you kind of get this lock-in problem if you're designing components or code that is completely purpose-built towards a single platform. A different way of achieving commonality is to independently develop a set of components with standard interfaces and rapidly recombine them into single mission systems. What do you think about this distinction between commonality across missions and commonality of components? So I have a pretty hard-line view on that, um, not politically speaking, but defini definitionally. So for me, um, commonality of parts or code is a measurable thing. Um, you know, on the Joint Strike Fighter, they published a set of metrics that said the following parts uh, are used identically between these two variants, or these following parts uh, of the code are used identically between two of the variants. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a definition that can be exact. Um, when people start talking about mission uh, or alternatively, when they start talking about process, it's very difficult to draw a hard line on what constitutes uh, identical missions, what constitutes identical process versus what constitutes similar missions or similar process. Um, and that has 
tons and tons of implications for how we manage programs and manage acquisitions. Um, so it, the um, we had done a large study of um, of essentially joint programs, which uh, was called the MIT Commonality Study over time. It was actually funded by the government. It was funded by NASA originally. Um, and looked at 32 different companies and agencies over the course of um, eight years to try and identify sort of what are the what are the practices that seem to um, stand people in good stead for this type of programs. Um, I think the Joint Strike Fighter program is a is a fascinating case study. It was known that that was a troubled program at the time that we began the MIT Commonality Study, and yet a lot of the um, the output of the study was actually, uh, in some sense, a positive framing of the Joint Strike Fighter program. Um, among other things, what we found was that uh, the divergence the, the JSF program has seen, i.e. movement from a target of 80 to 90 percent part sharing to uh, achievement levels in the sort of 20 and 30 percent range, is not a unique failure of that program, but is in fact a commonly displayed pro, uh, behavior in many joint programs and also out in industry in many uh, attempts at commonality, we find this, this same behavior. So our interest in that was, um, you know, what, uh, what can you do about it? But what you do about it really hinges on whether you're, you're trying to actually share a bunch of parts in code or whether you're trying to share process or as you said, mission. Um, so there's uh, there's quite a distinction there for me. Do you think part of that was because they prematurely tried to pursue commonality between those variants on the F-35? After all, they were essentially developing those components in conjunction with the platform at the same time. And then with the growth of knowledge, it seemed to be that they realized, oh, well, these missions are a little bit different. There's different requirements. We're going to need this or that other changes, which brought it down from 80 to 90 down to 20 to 30% commonality. How do you mm -hmm. think about that incremental kind of stepping towards commonality from the bottom up versus planning it from the top down ahead of time and then trying to reach that goal? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out there's failure modes um, on, on both ends of that spectrum. So on the one end of the spectrum, you have the idea of um, let's develop common parts or code in line with an existing program, which is the reality of what happened with the Joint Strike Fighter, right? Um, it wasn't like there was a set of uh, parts that were that were sort of pre-developed and then the programs then launched and sort of grabbed those parts off the shelf and, and built aircraft around them. And um, the approach of sort of running common development in line with product development, um, you know, has a bunch of advantages, right? Uh, it, it, it actually helps to constrain the scope because you have uh, schedule pressure associated with getting product out the door uh, and often uh, avoids challenges that you see um, elsewhere with sort of, quote, the universal design um, where, you know, when, when I, if I'm in a company and I carve a group off to say, you know, I want you to develop the platform of the future for this company and we're not sure what products you're going to develop on it, but, you know, just write some great code and then we'll find a use for it later on. Those programs tend to last a long time. They tend to be very insulated from, uh, the market, they tend to drift uh, in terms of sort of picking a heading uh, and then migrating away from that heading um, in a commercial sense. Um, and yet, uh, you know, running a program that also has, you know, a whole bunch of uh, technology maturation and the development of common components in line clearly also has cons, as you were expressing it uh, from a Joint Strike Fighter perspective. There was a bunch that was not known 
uh, might reasonably have foreseen, been foreseen, but was not known at the at the onset of that program about um, the performance breadth that was going to be demanded of individual components. Um, right. It was it was clear from the start that there were three different missions, uh, but the um, technical feasibility of sharing certain parts across them was not necessarily well understood. Um, what we find is that you know in order to be successful with um, common parts, you need you need four things. Um, you you obviously always need technical feasibility, right? So if I'm sharing a a strut between uh, two different landing gear, that strut has to be able to take the loads of the two aircraft to which it is attached, right? And um, I, I can't, uh, you know, there's there's obvious technical concerns with putting a small strut on a big heavy plane, you might actually break the strut, right? And that's not gonna be a common strut between the two. Um, however, uh, that's probably not the main criteria that I have for it. The main criteria I have for it is, is it financially beneficial to share that strut between these two programs? Um, and you can think about that financially in terms of development cost, non-recurring, or in terms of, um, uh, in terms of unit cost. But um, somewhere along the line, you know, platforming joint programs became an expression of almost a, a religion uh, and at the end of the day, we execute joint programs or we execute platform programs because they provide a financial benefit to us. Either they, they give us uh, more capability for the same money, they give us the same capability for less money. Um, we do them because we earn, we are trying to earn a financial return on them. And uh, to my mind, that often gets lost along the way. There's a lot of PowerPoint charts that suggest that there's a there's a suite of benefits from this, but um, the research on this shows that relatively few programs actually think about this financially and also relatively few programs um, really earn a demonstrated financial advantage over having done it independently. Um, I mentioned there were four criteria, so that's two so far, technically feasible and financially beneficial. Um, has to be attractive to the customer as well. The, the compromise is entailed by carrying a common component that is not ideal for either use case, but is a compromise between the two use cases or more than two use cases um, has to be expressed. And that was a clear challenge in the Joint Strike Fighter program. The, um, uh, the three services participating uh, fought um, quite a bit about uh, the level of compromise that was entailed by sharing with others um, and also created some requirements churn in the process by uh, requesting uh, these types of changes. And then the very last one is the most difficult from an execution perspective is organizationally possible. Um, and of all the uh, case studies that we ran at MIT, um, the most uh, damning failure mode uh, was often um, that it was organizationally infeasible to conduct sharing. Can you expand a little bit on that point of organizational feasibility? What is it about compromises between multiple organizations in the joint program that really leads things technically down the wrong path? Yeah. So the um, I'll give you two examples. Uh, we'll stick with the joint strike fighter, but then we'll move to another one. Um, organizationally possible uh, in the sim most simplistic form means how far up the chain do I have to go to find somebody who is willing to invest in one program in order to see a return in another program? And um, if I can't find that person quickly, um, it means that we're going to have a very difficult time arranging meetings to organize compromise. 
And, um, you know, you see this uh, very clearly on the joint strike card program today. There was a recent decision, if I'm not mistaken, to um, to run depots for the three services separately rather than to run a set of shared depots, uh, which is, you know, a, a very common decision in a bureaucracy to, to sort of host local control uh, rather than to devolve control to some sort of shared entity over which we might have less um, influence. Um, but, uh, you know, clearly starts to, to continues to eat away at whatever efficiencies were to be obtained by doing this once rather than sort of um, re reinventing the wheel in three different places. Um, the second example I had uh, was a um, series of, of cases that were run on jointness. We had a PhD student, uh, Morgan Dwyer, who uh, wrote her whole PhD uh, thesis on sort of what are the what are the results of joint programs in the past? Um, and one of one of the case studies that she had was a joint weather site uh, weather satellite program between NOAA and the uh, and the DoD, uh, which was called NPOS, which many people are familiar with. Uh, on the NPOS program, the program structure had no had no individual that was in that position to. Um, invest in one program in order to see savings in another. Um, and the steering committee structure was such that you basically had to go up to a quarterly meeting of the uh, undersecretary uh, and the agency head for NOAA to find the body that was in theory willing to invest in one in order to see savings in another, which means that um, decision-making uh, on the program was, was tremendously long timelines uh, and was missing a lot of the um, sort of important details of execution on a day-to-day -day basis in the program. Yeah, it's interesting. I interacted with Morgan Dwyer briefly over at OSD Cape when she ran a modular architecture uh, strategic portfolio review, which had some interesting things come out of it. For the organizational part, I'm wondering what degree is it that this uh, ability to use funding for the benefit of another program or another organization really just kind of one of these things of, well, who has the power? If I'm starting to uh, support another program, that potentially might mean my organization will get less funding or some kind of thing like that in the future. Do you think the ability for these organizations to justify funds has a component there? Oh, it has a tremendous amount to do with it. Um, you know, the um, here at MIT, we're very fond of this uh, three lens model for organizations: organizations as machines, organizations as politics, and organizations as culture. Um, and you know, I think a lot of us traditionally think of organizations as machines. You know, it's a it's a large bureaucracy, but it uh, has a series of intended functions it's in, it's going to accomplish, and uh, has a structure that's going to enable some behavior. When you start to think about sort of organizations as uh, as politics, though, you you very quickly come upon the, you know, the reality that we've all experienced that organizations are contests, right? That um, the incentives faced by the individuals in the organization have a lot to do with their behavior, um, and uh, that's that's as true in the DoD as it is in every Fortune 500 company, um, and uh, you know, compounding that, you see sort of this organization as culture sort of question when uh, when we have a set of beliefs and norms about we we do things differently or we do things better um, that doesn't uh, doesn't lead you to a um, mindset that 
that is going to that's going to enable a lot of sharing. So we often hear about agile development processes in the Department of Defense. But do those processes really apply when we're thinking about system architecture or is agile really useful just for building apps on top of a mature architecture? Yeah, great question and lots of lots of interest in this topic right now, certainly. You know, in um you know, you you use the term system architecture there, and I think we have to define that because I think some people use that to mean exclusively complex development programs, and other people use that in a much more functional sense. Uh, a coffee cup has a system architecture, uh, the same way that uh, a weather satellite has a system architecture. Um, so, uh, you know, our view on uh, architecture is that it's it's. Uh, it's a scalable idea, but it, it basically represents the um, the key decisions that you make, the decisions that end up having an outsized impact on the uh, performance of the system. And you know, thinking about a coffee cup, if I make my coffee cup out of titanium uh, versus if I make it out of ceramic, it's going to have a uh, very different performance properties, and it's also going to have very different cost. Um, so for me, that that idea tends to s- scale pretty well. But um, coming back to your question about agile. Um, the, the real challenge of running Agile in a mature or particularly in a complex development area is your ability to carve off a set of parallel features that uh, can be independently tested. Um, and, uh, you know, where Agile has really uh, uh, succeeded in the software world, um, we have tremendous tools to be able to essentially sort of parallelize the work uh, where I, I can grab a, a stream and over the course of a relatively short sprint, um, add functionality that is demonstrable at the system level. And by contrast, when we look at sort of complex uh, programs, one of the real challenges is we have these emergent properties that, that come up as, um, as an interrelationship between a whole bunch of different components uh, that sort of destroy our ability to parallelize it. So unfortunately, most of my experience with the word agile in the aerospace and defense world is as a byword for let's just run development programs faster. Um, that does not imply anything truly different about the, the way the development program is run or about the um, risk posture of the firm running that development program. So is there something just inherent about aerospace and defense programs that means that they can't really be uh, broken up into these independent pieces that can be independently tested and then recombined? Or what do you, what do you think about that? It's not, uh, it's, it's not only inherent to aerospace and defense. Um, I'll be the first to say that. Um, you see tons, tons and tons of issues like this in uh, automotive, uh, in the development of the electric grid, lots of um, in lots of different industries but it is a very real phenomena in the sense that the size and complexity of the program does make it very challenging to um, to parallelize the development as I, as I said earlier now unfortunately I think that reinforces a lot of beliefs in the aerospace industry um, you know my my history with the the industry is such that the um, you know, we, we were here at the 50th anniversary of the Apollo program, and, you know, I think the industry has uh, has a tremendous historical record of developing 
at the edge of the performance envelope. And that in turn has a bunch of implications for um, for both your risk posture, which I think in some cases we've we've forgotten about since the um, since the Apollo days, uh, but also for the um, size of your uh, size of your development program. And those two working in concert often mean that um, it's really challenging to sort of parcel things up. So Agile or DevOps has made some pretty good uh, headway in the software world, and we seem to have some good progress there in the world of bits and software. There seems to be an agreement that while we've made tremendous progress in software, it doesn't seem like there's been that much progress in the world of atoms and hardware. Do you think that characterization is correct? And why? Yes, uh, and I, I don't think it's novel either. Frankly, um, I think lots of lots of people have observed that. I think um, you know, there's there's um, uh, there's some what you might call corner cases or exemptions uh, to that proposition. So if you look at F1, for example, uh, Formula One racing, um, you know, you see uh, tremendously high performing physical as well as software systems uh, that are essentially developed in a nine-month window between seasons, you know, you know during the, the current season, on into the break, and then, you know, deployed prior to the following season that's, you know, clearly run on a calendar basis and they don't spend the whole year developing. Um, so, um, you know, I think that there's, there's certainly some analogies to be made. Now, uh, building a Formula One car that always has four wheels, that always has one engine, uh, in, in modern terms, you know, there's consideration of other electric motors that might be used. But, you know, to first order, the architecture of that vehicle is set. And um, for other hardware uh, products where the architecture is stable over time, I think that gives some promise of uh, potential... Uh, potential acceleration from a development perspective, but um, that's the exception rather than the, rather than the rule. And I can't tell you how many, how many organizations sort of um, stare those statistics down and um, argue for marginal gains from the same process rather than for um, sort of recognition of the challenge facing them. Um, you know, it's, it's very common from a product development standpoint to complain or to have, um, Issues with you know four, five, eight-year development schedules, and yet to argue that by applying more pressure to the development team, or by using a slightly different process with exactly the same people, that the result is going to be different. Um, and so, from a research perspective, I have to I have to look at that from an objective perspective and say um, it doesn't look like the you know, for many people, the, the magnitude of the change that is proposed uh, tends to be small, and also the effect of that change tends to be small, if that makes sense. So I'm not sure if you've been following some of the uh, rapid acquisition pathways that they have there in the Department of Defense, but they're pretty much trying to uh, get some pretty complex hardware programs uh basically chopping down that schedule time frame to something two to five years. So, for example, they're doing a follow-on program to Sibbers, which took more than a decade of development. They're trying to get that down within five years for the next generation. Similarly, with hypersonics, they're, they're putting a lot of those on the fast track. Is what you're saying about um, the difficulty of hardware architectures and, and getting that right, 
do you think this is more of just like a fast track kind of method that potentially will result in delays? Or do you think that there's something that uh, can be done that they can actually get these platforms out there in two to five years? Well, um, let me say at the outset, I'm not specifically familiar with that initiative, although I've certainly seen what um, what sounds like similar programs over time, right? These these tend to move in waves. Um, you know, the when you think about product development, you've got a couple of big levers and then you've got a bunch of small levers. Um, and, you know, to the extent that that program is using some of the big levers, like the quality of the people that are engaged on it and the risk posture of the firm, um, you know, there is there is a lot of potential there to, to do extraordinary things. I, you know, you must be familiar with this um, quote, which I'm going to uh, butcher, but which is essentially, you know, never doubt that a, a small group of like-minded and uh, spectacularly motivated individuals can change the world. Um, you know, I think the the challenge that a lot of organizations in aerospace and defense face is, is to some extent, getting really high-quality, motivated people. You know, I remember uh, seeing a program uh, where, uh, you know, initial progress was very strong. And then as the program grew, it scaled up uh, in order to feed the program's perceived need for manpower. Um, they hired a tremendous amount of uh, literally new college grads uh, who are very high on the motivation scale and very low on the experience scale. Um, and in this case, they hired a lot of them. This was not sort of, they hired the cream of the crop out of a couple of universities, but rather they, you know, they hired thousands of people. Um, and not unsurprisingly, the sort of average productivity of the organization fell dramatically in that process. Um, so who's on the program, uh, is obviously, uh, uh, has a huge impact. And I think a lot of organizations have historically recognized this with, uh, skunk works style, um, you know, small shops, uh, that have, uh, you know, brilliant people engaged in, in the program and in some cases also have different uh, sort of personnel incentives in place. Uh, but the other thing I will mention is the, um, the risk posture. So, um, uh, you know, SpaceX's Elon Musk is, is famous for developing a risk culture and for having risk as an explicit sort of sliding scale in the, um, in the organization. He, you know, he's also famous for having, uh, you know, a very young workforce that works a tremendous number of hours. Um, but I think the the risk posture is sort of not to be underestimated that, um, uh, that if you are willing to fail in the development program, uh, and if you are willing to believe that the fastest way to get things done is to fall flat in your face, uh, and then, um, try again, you know, it's an old adage, but I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I've, my sense is that a lot of the organizations that are challenged from a timeline perspective treat risk as a uh, do not go zone. Yeah, I think you're right there. It feels to me, at least, that they're really just trying to compress these time scales by just kind of throwing out some of the requirements or the contract processes. But from my perspective, it seems that there's no willingness to let the, a program fail. You still budgeted this thing for at least five years into the future. You have a program plan. It's taken a few years just to get everyone's okay. Now that you're going, um, there's not that risk posture that says, hey, we can let this fail and reroute the money. You can't just reroute the money. Um, that's going to take a reprogramming action and all that. So that disrupts a lot of bureaucratic plans and organizations and the like. Um, do you have anything to say about that? 
Well, I, you know, I think um, the the DARPA model has been obviously very successful uh, in, you know, finding and empowering groups of people to do the opposite of what you just described. Um, the question is just sort of how scalable is that? Um, I, I would I would agree with the assertions you made, um, and there are there are clear um, counterexamples to them, but they um, they're not widely they're not widely practiced. Do you think cybersecurity has fundamentally changed anything about systems architecture? Um, fundamentally, no. Actually, um, I think of cybersecurity as a classic emergent property. Um, uh, you know the um, uh, the idea of an emergent property is uh, it's it's not traceable to the performance of one system. So you know when you think about uh, I'll give an analogy of um, racing car. I'm a, um, I'm a hobbyist uh, and love my older older cars. Have a couple in the garage, and so this you know is an easy to hand metaphor for me. But um, you know when you think about the horsepower output of an engine, you know that's a, a fairly direct product of a couple of factors and it's um you know it's very traceable back to the engine uh if you're looking at you know looking at that as what you know people in the dod would call a figure of merit however if you're looking at lap time um lap time is a classic emergent property right it is not the product of any one subsystem uh and it is not a linear combination of a couple of different uh efforts but rather um, a whole bunch of different things have to have to come together, and um, small changes can have tremendous um, impact on the overall lap time. And the same thing goes for um, for cybersecurity. Now, I am not at all a cybersecurity expert. Um, there are lots of people at MIT who do study that, um, but um, you know, from my perspective. Cybersecurity is, is yet another emergent property that uh, has become levied and is important to levy on the development of systems where lots of different things have to come together in order to produce some reasonable forecast of a system that is robust to penetration. And similarly, uh, small changes in um, small changes in approach, small changes in process, small changes in the code. Uh, can have very large effects in terms of that system. Now, the trouble with emergent properties is they're difficult to predict. Um, you, you know, we rely on uh, sort of past behavior or pattern matching in order to try and predict them. Generally speaking, we have poor simulation capability for predicting them. That's in some sense why we call them emergent properties. But you know, whether it's whether it's changed our approach to development or whether it's um, it's a it's a totally different quantity to manage from other quantities that we manage in development programs. Fundamentally, I say no. So as systems are becoming more and more complex over time, it seems that more and more about what we care about is in these emergent properties that you're describing. How is it that we can kind of control and make sure that we're getting the capabilities we need if a lot of these properties are emergent and we can't necessarily put a requirement in for them at the start of a contract or at the start of the program upon approval? Well, uh, you know, cl classically, product development is a process of res um, resolving conflicting constraints. And the more constraints you have, the longer it takes you to find a solution that's feasible under all of them. Uh, that's a very vast oversimplification of what people do in, in building new stuff. But um, it's, uh, it's a pretty enduring one. And um, 
So uh, the way I think about it, you know, we we often term these illities, um, you know, robustness, reliability, maintainability, manufacturability. You know, I would put cybersecurity in that same list, even though it doesn't end in illity. Um, the uh, you know the the more we levy, the the longer the program's going to take. All else being equal, because it takes. It takes time to think about, you know, how is this going to be manufactured? What constraints does that Im- imply about um, the design of the of the thing? Um, that turns out to, you know, that trades off against essentially architectural change. So if I'm um, if I'm going to build a race car and it's going to look a lot like the last time we built a race car, and I know that, you know, a race car of the following dimensions is going to fit in my factory floor, then that allows me to satisfy some of those constraints without having to do a lot of detailed analysis of is my race car going to fit in the factory um, to the extent that we are rapidly changing the architecture then it makes it it makes it much more difficult to guarantee any set of abilities um, or you can think about that another way it takes you a lot longer to run a development program that has some reasonable chance of satisfying a bunch of those emergent properties so you know, industries run at very different clock speeds, right? You know, the you know aircraft industry designs a new airframe, you know, something on average, on an average, like 20 years um, versus when you look at how often does Intel or AMD design a new design, a new modem chip, which was in the news today. You, you know, you might be looking at something on the order of two years. Uh, similarly, when you look at um, so how often do we re-architect software code depending on the industry that could be anywhere from 18 months to four years you know lots of people would argue it's shorter than that it depends on your definition of architecture but um the fact that um we have some subset of industries that are moving really quickly and and everybody points at um, electrical engineering and software as moving the fastest today suggests that we have less and less prediction capability about the um uh, about the emergent properties i remember actually studying a development program that was in the medical device arena where there was a set of um, some 50 metrics that were levied on on the new program and then there was a statement that the the previous program which had been in existence for let's call it 15 or 20 years um, that the new program had to eclipse all of the metrics and provide new functionality and the reality is you know you when you develop a new program you don't know where all the failure modes are. You don't know where all the manufacturing issues are until you start doing it. So um, it's uh, wishful thinking in some cases. I think you've just described the Department of Defense's project management rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd like to shift gears here just a little bit. Um, recently, the Space Development Agency put out a request for information for the design of a new space architecture. What kind of advice would you give there? Yeah, I hadn't seen that when it came out, but um, uh, I have it up on the screen here. This is a very broad use of the term architecture. Um, so you know, one of the alternative definitions of architecture I gave mine early on, which was you know, a set of design decisions that have outsized impact. Uh, but one of the alternative definitions is uh, a collection of interfaces uh, that imply something about interoperability. And I think this, uh, the way this is framed looks a lot more like a collection of interfaces to me. You know, when you're talking about um, developing new architectures, particularly in space, um, I think, um, you know, one element that's that's really valuable to think about here is uh, what are the interfaces that, that we're going to be strict about? And the, in the position paper that was put out by the DOD, there's an expression of a bunch of layers 
that's obviously a metaphor in the sense that these aren't explicitly going to be layers. And uh, as with any good layered architecture, I would very much doubt that these are going to have a single interface between layers. Uh, but I think it really does um, sort of beg consideration of what what do we what do we think the what do we think the opportunity for a consistent enforcement of a couple of interfaces is, um, and what would those interfaces be? So I, I'd advocate for spending some time on the interface problem, separate from the um, shiny new hardware kind of question. And then the other thing that that I would advocate is representing a bunch of different possible architectures. Um, and where people get into trouble is where they tend to sort of layer more and more considerations into a, a given architecture as if it's the default. And what we would advocate from the system architecture lab is there's a lot of power in sort of exploring the trade space before you go and down select. Um, so what I'd love to see out of this is um, here's a list of potential architectures that we could consider. And here's the pros and cons for each, whether that implies something about the the scalability, uh, whether that implies something about the, the absolute value of the, the capability when it's deployed, uh, or whether that implies something to our earlier conversation about the, the level of schedule risk that's entailed. Bruce Cameron, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Thank you for having me. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.